0: Today, I've got really interesting guests. Colin Cantrell, uh, the creator of Nexus Coin NXS. Very, very smart guy. Uh, Knows a tremendous amount about cryptography and Bitcoin. So he's going to have a lot of great insights for everybody. So that's why he's here. So, how are you doing, Colin? I'm doing
1: pretty good. How about yourself? Good. Yeah. Thanks for coming. So, um, yeah. Thank you for having me online. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So we'll weave in various topics, but, um, when I spoke to you about Nexus, um, you told me that uh, a lot of the code and a lot of the reason for creating the coin and the insight came from Bitcoin. So, can you talk about what led you to create Nexus Coin, and you know, what did you take from Bitcoin, and uh, you know, what do you know about the code?
1: Well, basically, I mean, I could just say I learned from Satoshi, but not necessarily in the respect of Satoshi directly talking to me. It's just as a computer programmer. Everybody thinks differently. I mean, that's how people at college get caught cheating. Everybody has their own unique style of code, which shows their logic. I guess you could say a program is just like logic statements, flow of information, how a stored process. Everything. So I wanted to start with an earlier code base. I think I started with uh zero point six point three, which was you know very a lot close to uh, Satoshi's original code because I wanted to learn from Satoshi in order to say, all right, well here's Bitcoin now. I can spend time in isolation just learning how he thinks, learning by, you know, taking it apart and putting it back together and finding how to break it and all these other things. And then assessing how the industry grows and evolves and saying, "Okay, well, now we can see some of the issues that have been arising with Bitcoin. And now we can do something about those issues by providing new technology on another blockchain that's kind of... I mean, you, for lack of better words, a testing bed, but it's also, you know, an incubation chamber, which, you know, a lot of the designs and all the technology I've built in Nexus spawned from, you know, those nine months to a year that I just was in that code and learned everything where everything went and learning <laughs> exactly how this individual thought, whether it's a group of individuals or the singular and taking that, that way that they thought and projecting that forward into promoting more technology on top of what's already been made.
0: So do you have any insights into Bitcoin's code that maybe uh, most folks wouldn't know because you studied it pretty closely?
1: Well, I mean, that's a very ambiguous question, but I mean, there's, I mean, I guess are you asking what are some of the limitations I've seen on the code-wise, just in a simple, simple brief statement?
0: Yeah, yeah. Talk about maybe, yeah, some limitations you've seen, uh, maybe some upcoming issues that you know, are not being talked about that you think need to be solved, or even the existing ones, you know, block size debate, um, you know, your insight on um, possible solutions?
1: Well, I mean, interesting enough, the block size debate is, I mean, in I, I'll just say the word interesting for lack of better, I mean, Satoshi originally had 20 megabyte block size, but they were like, oh, well, this is a large tax budget because at the cost of filling those blocks up, the spam transactions, it's very low, so it started at one megabyte, and then grow it as Bitcoin grows. That's how Satoshi thought about it. Now, it's not necessarily thought that way these days, but that's another thing. Another thing I noticed is the the actual socket level backend. Now I've spent a lot of time in socket programming and finding out how to make efficient server systems with you know how you design your threading models. Now the Bitcoin basically is just a single a single thread handling all the data connections, which reads it into a buffer and it handles all the connection, disconnects, timeouts, accepts new connections on the listener on one thread, which, you know, it works to a point, but it's not necessarily balanced. That's kind of one reason, like, things get loaded down. Even Nexus right now, is still using that backend, is loaded down very slow. And so, I mean, block propagation may not necessarily just be an issue of bandwidth. It can also be an issue of the ability to process the message for, you know, when it gets there. Because, I mean, you never know. I haven't really done any benchmarks, but If you have a very high transaction volume where they're having to verify the signatures, the ECDSA signature, you know, elliptical curve, digital signature algorithm, you have to verify every transaction signature and you're getting two to three transactions per second. And let's say, you know, there's a bit of a backlog already. You know, I mean, blocks may come in slower. There may be other protocol messages that may delay it even half a second or 100 milliseconds, or even 200, but then you multiply 200 milliseconds through how many nodes it has to get through to finally propagate, that can become one to two, three, four seconds that really can be improved on the code level without having to increase your hardware capabilities, which is what your bandwidth would be.
0: So what do you think um, of the current block size debate? Do you, you know, what do you think about SegWit versus Bitcoin Unlimited, SegWit two megabytes? uh, you know, what do you what do you guess is going to happen, and what's your evaluation of these technologies?
1: Well, I couldn't really. I got to make an educated guess. hypothesis on what happened. I mean, I personally think witness witnesses a definite move forward, but then it gets away from some of the original architecture. But you know, there's a mix on say what I I can't say for or against because I just I haven't researched it as thoroughly as I probably should. But it just was something that never really drew my attention because it, it seems a little bit off the architecture of you know the original Bitcoin architecture now. Bitcoin Unlimited, I really like the idea that, hey, you know what? We see some of this politics going around with this block size debate. You know, For whatever reason, Chinese miners don't want to do it. From some, some of them say it's the great firewall of China, which will slow block propagation and they are afraid of orphans. There's also many other things that could be influencing this. So, I mean, I like the idea of Bitcoin Unlimited in the sense that, you know, some people say it's an attack, but in other ways, it's kind of like, well, hey, you know what I mean? Bitcoin is kind. people are trying to take the power back because for some reason, miners have the stranglehold on everything. So as we can take this power back and we can push this forward, you know, it's it's kind of setting a precedent It is kind of technically a 51% attack if somebody releases a big block, which is going to force everybody to update. But on the secondary perspective, it's kind of like, well, now people have a little bit more of a voice. Now... Your node just running, you know, can signal what you accept, whether or not you're a miner or not. And so, you know, I mean, I would say that there's probably, just from my understanding of the code, better ways to implement it. But I think it was done just to prove a point and to get things moving in that direction to get people start to think like, hey, you know what? We need to figure out how to break this miner's stranglehold. I mean, personally, (laughs) the way I would do something on a Bitcoin Unlimited level is... (laughs) serialize an unsigned integer into the Coinbase script sig on the inputs that signals a certain block size and then you know of course you have the activation of that rule which is going to read that script and say okay now we know there's another unsigned integer but people should be able to vote the block sizes and miners so that stranglehold can change. So now if everybody's voting one megabyte that's going to make things more difficult but more people voting what if you had some sort of average or you know it's in a certain bound to say like well let's say the average block size that people want minus are signaling is 1.25 megabytes because a lot of them did one megabyte, and then some say one and a half megabytes, and some say two, and then average all together the last thousand blocks. Hey, bam! now we know like this is a consensus that maybe we should average the consensus together instead of making it directly like 75, 50%, whatever. Why don't we take everybody's opinions and kind of join them together into a block size, which would be really easy to do which would be a cleaner way to do it, in my opinion, which wouldn't cause forks because that that specific way to do it would have to be activated, for one, kind of like, you know, say a 50% activation or 75, like, say, really. And then from there, then people can vote for the block side. Now, with Bitcoin Unlimited, it's basically like, hey, if I signal, I want to accept only one and a half megabyte blocks and there's two megabyte blocks, I'm going to be about however many blocks behind I stay until I'm forced to accept that, which it works. I mean, it prevents forks, quote unquote, on the Bitcoin unlimited nodes, but on the Bitcoin core nodes it doesn't. So it could turn into something either really good or really bad. It's kind of it could go either way and it really just depends on the intentions of what people do. So I mean, if we're talking about the scaling debate and let's say I had the ability to make that decision or put out an update like that, I mean that's how I would do it. I think segregated witness is very complicated. And keeping a signature out of the block hash during the transaction hash does prevent transaction malleability attacks, and it does prevent ASIC boosts, which is, you know, something that has nearly been discovered by, I believe, Gregory Maxwell, where they kind of pre-compute partial collisions, which allows them to mine at about 20 to 30% higher hash rate per, you know, transistor per ASIC than would be before. So, I mean, looking at that, SegWit adoption would be, Kind of difficult to get implemented because asic boost i mean in my opinion right it's a natural progression still of the mining industry just like people complained about asics when there was only fpgas and gpus well yeah of mm-hmm. course they are going to complain because they've already invested in a large amount of hardware but asic boost you know i mean it could be good it could be bad. But if everybody has asic boost then that's the next level of asic and then there may be another asic boost and another and so the fact that there's probably millions of dollars invested in developing that physical hardware it's going to be really, really difficult to get something like that to adopt, in my opinion, because, you know, there's so much money already invested. So, I mean, why don't we follow where the money is and try to find a way to balance, like, hey, these guys have already invested this much and these guys have this much. Like, why don't we find a balance them together? Because it's pretty much a debate of, like, we want to earn more money. And everybody's got their own opinions on how they want to earn more money or how they figured out how to earn more money. So, what if we could find a way to kind of help everybody earn money instead of potentially losing money by this, you know, potential civil war. So, yeah, talking a little bit more about the ASIC boost. Um,
0: is it possible that everyone could use it? I mean, what do you think is going to happen with it? Do you think it's just going to become a commonplace thing
1: that I would think so? I mean, think about like back in 2013, I remember the Avalon, I think was the first ASIC chip ever made. Now, that's when they were first start coming out. And there was like a couple of open source ATICs. I was thinking of actually starting an ASIC company back then, but I was like, Oh, I mean, it's just hardware arms race. It's going to be a big, whole mess of overhead and logistics. Like there's better ways to do it. But I mean, in comparison, like to FTGA versus basic, I see it as a similar type of comparison where it's just like, you know, at first there's going to be a few people that are going to get, reap their rewards from it. But as word spreads and it gets more and more public, then they have another form of monetization and say, we have the best ASIC, just like Avalon have the only ASIC. Now, we have the only ASIC boost. You know? And so, eventually, yeah, I believe everybody would get onto that, which then would move, you know, Bitmain to saying, ah, now let's do ASIC boost 2.0 or ASIC super boost. Or, you know, I mean, it, it's a natural progression. It's, I wouldn't say it's an exploitation of a whole. I mean, from my understanding of it, I mean, I just briefly glanced at the white paper, but... Basically, from what I understand of it, it's pre-computing collisions, which makes it easier so you don't have to do as much computation on it because you can pre-compute a set of data that is going to be more likely to be a hash that's going to win, so that you don't have to search through hashes that you know aren't going to. Which, you mm-hmm. know, is an optimization to the security model. And I mean, the higher the uh, hash rate on Bitcoin, the more secure it is. So I mean should we really be fighting the hardware? I mean, hardware is the most difficult to change. Software is easy to change. So, you know, segregated witness, this may be like a nail in its coffin. And segregated witness may just be useful for Litecoin or, you know, other coins too. I mean, it's not necessarily like it's a useless technology, but it's going to be very, very difficult to basically render this invested money that was invested in generating new hardware. is going to render that useless. And that's going to render all of that ROI. gone. Which this is going to be, and Bitmain is a very, very large ASIC producer, so it's an uphill battle, in my opinion.
0: Well, so you think this could be the the secret reason why um, Segwit hasn't achieved hasn't achieved a majority, and it's not in place already?
1: It could very well be. Yeah, I mean, as far as I've understood, that's looking like a likely cause. But I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm not going to speak in knowns because everything really is kind of unknown unless you like talk and see it yourself. So. I mean that's yeah. that's what I would assume. Yes.
0: With ASIC boost, um so if Bitmain is using it, um essentially it's increasing their hash power by I mean by a proxy in a way of like you know, for like twenty, thirty or thirty percent, right? It makes l- it makes the kind of, I look mean, like
1: think of it I mean sorry to interrupt, but I mean just to, to keep it on the right train, think of it like prime seeding, right? Like like supercomputing, we have a prime algorithm in Nexus and you know, the initial prime manner I made was just brute force. You no, I didn't design it to be efficient at all, but he designed a seeding system and also it optimized it for tuplets to say, why are we going to surf through numbers we know aren't going to be prime when we can just jump to spots that we know are going to be more likely to be prime? It's, it's similar to that, from my understanding of it is like, well, you know, let's find values that are going to be the most conducive to reaching this targeted hash. By eliminating all the ones we know aren't going to be that instead of having to go through it iteratively, you know, consecutively. So it's just kind of like finding the hotter spots and hash, which, you know, is, I think, like, there's just a natural progression.
0: Gotcha. Do you, I know the Bitcoin network adjusts the um, the difficulty of the hash problem, depending on the, uh, the hash power. Does ASIC boost bypass this, or will the network see that, uh, oh, you know, uh, the hash is being solved faster than before, so now the difficulty will increase.
1: Well, yeah, if the hashes are being solved faster, the difficulty increased, you know? So if you have optimizations and even, like, eliminating your need to search for new hash groups, it should definitely be the same. Now, like I said, I briefly glanced at it, so I don't want to speak in you know, unknowns and speak as I know, but as far as, you know, my understanding of it, yeah, the difficulty should compensate. And it would just be like a normal increase in your hardware, like ASICs were to FPGA.
0: Hmm, Interesting. So this could um, up the game for now for everybody.
1: Pretty much. I mean, and think about it, higher difficulty, higher security, you know, specialized mining computers, you know, that opens up a whole new market and a comparison. And then that, you know, makes some of the older miners more obsolete. And that opens up a new type of ASIC, which I mean I personally never would have thought that there was a new type of ASIC now some people say it's a bug that's exploited in bitcoin, some people say it's you know partial collisions and other things, so it's still really unknown. like I might do some more research on this and speak a little more later on it because you know it's really kind of interesting, but it's it's hard to wrap your head around for a minute but that's that's my understanding yeah. of it just from a quick glance
0: okay, and then um again, from your understanding of the Bitcoin code, do you see any other problems coming up for, for Bitcoin or other difficulties that need to be overcome?
1: Well, yeah, I think the biggest problem that we're seeing elucidated from this whole block size debate is specifically the block size debate. So, I mean, Bitcoin was in cryptography, we trust, right? You know, I mean, cryptography is what controls your money and everything like that. And it's supposedly designed as a trustless system. So based on those intentions from Satoshi, you know, I think, he never really got done with it completely. And it was more set out as an experiment. Like, Hey, you know, I mean, like if I were trying a totally new experimental technology and I wanted to test it out, I wouldn't go to every little fine detail because I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll go that far and realize, Oh wait, you no, know, it doesn't work or whatever. So, you know, it's a baseline cryptocurrency with everything that is needed to make it work. But one of the things that, you know, I've spoken on before is the allowable clock drift issue. You know, it's, you know, it's keeping time records but the the clocks being two hours apart from one another, even with the median time, can cause some issues there. You know, I mean, some of the back end code problems and some of the political issues. Like you know, there's no way to cryptographically validate the votes. The votes are run by the miners. And that's how it was initially set with koshis and the white paper. Every block is a vote. So right now there's there's less and less and less likelihood anybody can get access to those votes, which kind of creates like you know, a global governance system with just a few people representing those folks, which are the mining pools. And the thing is, though, it's all the miners mining on the mining pool that are giving them the power of those votes, which is somewhat ironic. So it's kind of like it's degrading into a similar way that the system is now where it's just like votes are going the less and less people's hands, They're doing less and less. You know what I mean? get mm-hmm. or the GitBlock template was designed to be able to give people that ability, but it's just, it hasn't really taken to that form. So I believe that one of the big things is there needs to be, you know, I mean, if there was like Dash is kind of done a little with the masternodes, but that's, again, another type of centralized system that I don't decentralized centralized, you know, but I guess if there was more like how should I say cryptographic validation of votes that are held in many different areas of input other than just hardware that you use to online, I think that people's opinions would be not drowned out in the politics of all these political figures at Bitcoin, which would be. You know, all of the main guys. And so it's kind of up to what they say, and they can look at tweet on Twitter and control the price or anything else, and they can say, oh, we're not going to do this. We have 20% of the hash rate, and we're not going to activate say what. So people are like, oh, then 20%, then, you know, we're almost pretty much never going to get it because there's 75% that seed it, you know? So, oh, that gives us a 5% little bit of squeeze. So it's like, you know, as Bitcoin, I don't think Satoshi anticipated Bitcoin to grow as big as it has, and, you know, the protocol being itself is great. It's solid. It's a baseline. Bitcoin is an amazing storage of wealth. It works perfectly on that front. But political issues is one, and then there's some technological issues that can be, you know, easily mitigated. Like, I mean, I had to move from the Oracle DB, like Berkeley DB, you know, into Level DB to make things happen faster. But then the Bitcoin blockchain is 80 to 100 gigs now. So, I mean, last time I tried to download it was like 80, 90 gigs. I'm like, man, I need to get a new hard drive just for this. So it's um, getting more and more into the point where the cost is higher and higher and higher for you to have any contribution to the network, even just running a full node, which is no visible contribution. That's just, you can hold your coins on your Bitcoin wallet, you know? So there's a lot of things that I think can be looked at. And so as it being designed to trust the system, you know, it's kind of at the point where you have to trust what nodes you get it from, you, you have to trust the developers, you have to trust the political figures or the or should I should say, public figures would probably be an appropriate word. Are are true to the principles of it, or are not trying to line in their pockets? And wh- why can't we develop, you know, layers on top of the protocol further to expand it to give more? I guess the voice to more people because, I mean, not everybody has an option to change Bitcoin or to help it, even if we believe in it to our utter end. And you know that seems like it's something that's kind of can become a honeypot. So let's say. No banking systems to start trying to take over, or you know who knows you know how many of these public figures are actually for the intentions of Bitcoin or not paid off by some other person, so you know it's not that I'm saying anybody is, but I'm saying we don't know, and it's very difficult right. to know, so to having more mathematical cryptographic validation of public opinion, I think, is something that's going to do wonders for Bitcoin, which is what Bitcoin Unlimited is trying to do. It's a step forward. But now that Bitcoin's grown so big and the miners have a stranglehold, it's going to be really hard to break that stranglehold. And that's why Bitcoin Unlimited is coming out and saying, hey, well, you know, let's make this change. Even if people are going to give us a negative image on it, right? And they're going to say the code's bad or whatever. Or this is an attack and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that could just be... FUD, it's anti-publicity to get people not to adopt it. But really, I mean, Bitcoin Unlimited is taking a major step forward that Segwit isn't, which is giving people more of a voice. And I think that's something that's going to be necessary for decentralization to truly become worldwide and the world to truly be able to adopt it.
0: Yeah, if I were to ask you what changes you would make to Bitcoin to make it uh, better, safer, more democratic, etc., that's probably the reason you created Nexus, so maybe yeah, you can exactly. go over a, a few features that you built well, into Nexus, you know, that you, well, you see just, as an improvement on Bitcoin.
1: One little thing is, if I mean, I don't know how many people notice this, but I mean, I think the comment is taken out now, a newer version of Bitcoin Core, but in the version I use, 063, there was a comment right on top of uh, the version message, push, push version, right? And on that, you send them your timestamp, which is how they know how far your clock's off. And you send them a bunch of other data about you which is the first message that you send on the network. Hey, I am this node. And they say, oh, hey, this node, I am this node. Here's some data, so we understand each other. Oh, hey, I need some other nodes to talk to, whatever. It says, double slash, it says, when NTP implemented, remove this, right? And I'm like, what's NTP? So I looked it up. And this was like in the very, very beginning stages before Nexus has even uh, launched. This was, I was like, network time protocol. Ah. So Satoshi already wanted to make the clock synchronized. He just made the median time to get it out there and to just put the test out because implementing NTP would be a big task, especially because NTP is kind of a little bit centralized. It works off of a single server. You can make that decentralized, but I start with the time. The, the clocks, you know, and Bitcoin need to be synchronized as much as possible, even if it's, you know, not to the accuracy of NTP, which would be to the millisecond or hundreds of milliseconds. So, I mean, they should at least be synchronized to a second or You know, within a smaller fraction of that, because, you know, I mean, timestamps are a huge thing. A lot of people say, oh, Bitcoin's a timestamping engine, which is true to a point. There's a lot of other factors in it, but that is one of the core things is like timestamping transactions and showing when they happen. Others is verifying the UTXOs and the proof of work and validate these timestamps in the UTXOs let alone all the other components. So the time is, I think, a very, very core thing. And that's actually why I started developing unified time because I saw that comment and I'm like, well, let's look at NTP. And then I started saying, ah, well, there's amplification of task factors on NTP. Okay, well, let's see how it's designed. Let's build something a little bit better. And So, you know, first thing that would be a really easy drop in would just be unified time, which it wouldn't even have to be a consensus update or a rule. They could still allow a two-hour allowable clock drift, you know, and then the median time passed for the previous block, but, you know, anybody that updated it would be able to start synchronizing the clock at the same second, which then could prepare the times eventually to say, all right, well, let's lower our drift to an hour. Now. Let's lower it to half an hour, then. and then slow it to 10 minutes. And then let's get it to five minutes. And then one minute. And then 10 seconds, you know? And they could slowly be implemented that way. And then another big thing would be back-end them. Now, I was just mentioning earlier about how the Bitcoin back-end is kind of using, I mean... It's just a pretty simple socket routine, you know. I mean, it. I can tell he's an old school program because he still uses buffers and different things like that. I mean, not to say that I don't use, buffers, I just use it a little differently. But that's kind of the conventional way to socket program. I've kind of developed my own style with it. But if you look at it that way, the Bitcoin backend is processing all of the nodes. Like, so if you have 150 nodes, let's say the maximum default is about 100 connections. That are incoming. Let's, so you're processing 100 connections. I mean, every time that loop though it has to go through 100 different nodes on one thread. It asks at first, did this node time out? Okay. Nope, it didn't time out. Does this have anything to read? Okay. Read as many bytes into this buffer as I can. Does it have anything that it have anything to write? Okay. I will send that right. Okay. Goes through that 100 nodes. And then once it gets through them, it goes to the top and then it says, are there any new nodes that want to connect? All right. Bring new nodes in. Blah, 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 blah. And that, that itself can get really slow. and you know, a lot of people, you know, one thread for one core is the most efficient way, but I found a certain balance with kind of using sleeps and thread schedulers on the operating system level to make it work, you know, with 50 threads, 100 threads, instead of just one. And so everything has gone there. And then there's another thread that's uh, thread, message handler, something like that. And then there's uh, end messages, and then you have your import and then it caveat. So basically when a new message comes in, it reads from the buffer and it searches. If you look, there's four bytes on the header now. It's uh, you know, a unique four bytes so that it knows, well, the reason for those bytes is partially to know if that's a Bitcoin message or that's, you know, to distinguish different protocols. But the other thing is it reads through your buffer and finds those four bytes and knows that's the start of the message. Which then again, let's say you have a hundred or a thousand bytes. So it's a thousand iterations the CPU has to do when it doesn't really need to do that if you program the message packet a little bit differently you know, if you have been processed, you know, in parallel. So that basically is a big summary of the, the threading and the networking backend where, I mean, it's still okay. running on a lot of that technology, which, you know, can slow things down on a certain respect where hardware, I guess hardware is not utilized to its fullest in that perspective. And then, you know, other things are too, like the database system. So, you know, we're using LevelDB right now for the block index. Well, you know, there's block index, which is C block index, which is basically referencing a file position in blk 0001dat dot or zero zero two, blah, blah blah blah, which is basically a raw dump of a block, right? A raw dump just means a serialized in byte. Serialized means you just turn it into zeros blocks. And so, okay. the C block index has to be loaded. If you ever load up wall, it says loading block index. All you're doing is you're loading from either Berkeley DB or Level DB. It depends on what version you're using, how old it is, because Berkeley DB is a lot slower. It has to go then and say, okay, this is the file that I'm reading from. This is the binary position. And then the same thing with the transaction, DTXMX, which is what file? Then what binary position is the transaction in, in that raw block? And then how big is this transaction? So those are all used to reference because otherwise you'd have to read through millions and millions of bytes to find, okay, well, what block is this block? Well, I'm going to have to deserialize every point and find out what's what. So C-block index works. But I mean, I haven't really seen too many changes in that architecture, which... I think it seriously be improved substantially if, you know, I mean, there was, you know, a different type of database system, maybe a key value or something that works in both of those perspectives. So, like, something I've developed is, like, what's called a lower-level database. Now, the lower-level database kind of acts like that on itself with the keychain, and then only the keychain needs to be initialized in the LOD, which then it knows what sector, what file. And the other cool thing is what note. When it's completely done, you'll be able to essentially set a certain amount of data that your node wants service. And in that perspective, you'll be able to basically have the Bitcoin blockchain stored on thousands of nodes where they don't have to store the same copy. But the problem in that is you get things called Sybil attacks and other things like that. Well, Sybil, and that's actually one thing that, uh, you know, proof of work prevents is a Sybil attack because a Sybil attack basically means i there's let's say five ten thousand bitcoin nodes i can put up ten thousand nodes and attack the network with my own data and if it's a majority rules on the node then bam you know you can manipulate the whole blockchain but since it's a proof of work then your cost to make that data is in the proof of the work so that you wouldn't be able to Sybil it that way you'd have to Sybil it with the actual 51 percent of the hashing power, which is such a high cost that nobody would be able to pull that off these days. So right, right. basically, this gets into uh, the idea of, well, if it's a trustless system, shouldn't the system have a computational trust system so that we don't have to trust them? We trust mathematics, and that's it. I don't trust this person's character or this node's whatever or what anybody says about it. You have a mathematical trust. So that's something Nessus has been doing for a while, and we're actually improving to this Think about it as two different levels of trust. I guess I can give a good example in layman's terms of, let's say a relationship between you and me, Richard, right? So we both have yeah. our reputations and we decide to talk to each other from our reputations, right? And then that's kind of something everybody can know. That's Think of that as your objective trust, right? So, you know, I know who you are and you know who I am, so therefore we decide to start talking because there's enough merit right. there to say, well, this person's somebody worth talking to, not somebody that's just going to fill my head full of crap. And so then as you build that relationship together, you build your own personal trust between each other. So as we've continued to talk over time, we've built a personal relationship with each other, which either reflects positively or negatively on that reputation, right? But you and me are the only ones that know how much we trust each other, right? And everybody else, you know, how much our public reputation is. So think of that applied to computers. So every computer Mm. will have its own trust. Right, that everybody on the network knows, where if you're the first guy on the network, you say, who are the most trusted nodes?" All right, these guys. And then they start talking to him. And then if they talk to him over six months to a year, they'll build a really good repertoire. All right, I know this guy always gives me good data. He's an honest node. He's not selfish mining. He's not doing all these things. This would be done on the computational level. You would not never have to worry about it. Your computer would just do that. And then you build a bias of what nodes you like to talk to because of the ones you trust. And then other guys that trust you can say, hey, do you trust this guy? You'd be like, yeah, he's got a good reputation. But the thing is, you can't manipulate a private trust because nobody knows what the trust is. You can't change that. That's something between you and that node. And the longer you know that person...
0: Even if it was a private trust, wouldn't they know because they would see a certain node interacting with a certain node more often than others?
1: Yeah, I mean, they'd be able to see that, but they really wouldn't be able to know if you're interacting too much. They'd be able to see... If they talk to you and ask who you trust, you can say that, but you don't have to give the threshold of how much you trust them. You can just say, yeah, I trust them. Just like somebody would say, hey, do you trust your friend over here? You'd be like, yeah, I trust them. But you wouldn't tell them all the experiences you've had and every reason why you trust them. You'd just be like, yeah, 30s, you know. And based on that trust, that builds that that way. So what that eventually starts to build is an ability for nodes to distinguish from one another who they want to trust and not, and also build a global network reputation, which is going to be kind of a reason for them to talk to. So if, let's say, new guys come on the block with 5,000 nodes and try to start spamming bad data, we're going to be like, hey, new guys, like we've been talking to all my senior nodes over here for a long time, and you're coming here trying to give us crap. We go to the senior nodes, hey, uh, is this data good? Just say, no, we disagree with that data, too. You'd be like, ah, perfect. Well, now we know on that perspective that these guys are most likely not honest nodes. So, all right, you're never going to have the ability to get that reputation because we know you're trying to attack So the network can kind of start to understand its normal modus operandi, I guess you could say, how it normally operates, and distinguish the difference between the different types of nodes that they want to talk to, which goes back into the lower-level database. Now, that's a way that you can validate the integrity of data that other people host so that the nodes you trust are the ones that you talk to for certain pieces of the blockchain so that, I mean, even if... Current architecture as it is, with let's say 20 megabyte blocks or 100 megabytes, and the blockchain becomes terabytes and terabytes. We won't need massive computers to run them. I mean, you can run a normal computer on it and just serve it to okay. the chain, which is called fracturing and partitioning. So, the trust system allows you to validate the integrity of data and pieces of that data to make sure that they're not manipulating you, but make, and, but make sure that you don't have to hold all of it on yourself so that you only have to trust what you're doing. Because that's just as it grows and grows and grows that the inefficiency will compound and multiply, which can create issues like we're experiencing now.
0: So, Does that mean, um, essentially, you want to give more power and a vote to nodes right now, and at least in the Bitcoin network, you know, yeah, miners can spin, people, up, spin up their own nodes. So, okay. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny when you look at it, miners, um, they have their own nodes. You know, what about the rest of the nodes out there? Are they worth anything or are they just, you know, they get no reward. They just kind of sit out there and take up space. I mean, what what do you think is going to happen to the network of nodes on Bitcoin over time, with as mining you know continues to stranglehold, as you say? Well,
1: we're going to see what we've been saying. We're going to see less and less nodes because there's going to be less and less need for them. You know, I mean, the only reason there's going to be nodes is to make sure it stays decentralized. But like, why am I going to run a node when I have to build a special computer for it? I have to pay a monthly you know fee for a server to run it, or everything else associated with that. You know, I mean, it's just. For lack of better words, like the miners kind of have, what would we say, like the control of the chain when it's really very small, small, small percent of the total amount of people invested in Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. everybody that's invested in Bitcoin should have the right to say what they believe it should be. Otherwise, we just create another pyramid system, which is what the governments in the world are now
0: so nodes are going to become fewer, and they can become more concentrated in the hands of miners if things continue and as they are.
1: We've seen that. That's why Dash has a higher node count, and they're bragging about that, because they made a node incentive system. Now, I personally don't like the idea of masternodes, but you know the concept and the application of it is proving valuable in a sense of, producing more nodes and making a reason for you to produce nodes and also giving people a chance to have a vote. But now right now to have a vote on the dash network is a $70,000 vote. And that's only going to get worse and worse. The master nodes are going to become the same thing as miners. It's just like one step better, but that means better is good. But if we don't keep innovating forward, like as this adopts, I mean, then it's going to come to points where we're going to reach stalling situations where it's like the momentum can't push forward because hardware and the software can't handle that.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. So you're saying to you create a system where a node would have many different types of trust signals. One is a public one. And then with any other nodes it interacts with, it has uh, different trust levels.
1: Yeah. And, in the it's previous interaction. A subjective thing. and think about it too. If you have a node that's running for two years and you've got all the nodes that you've talked to and you know most of the nodes in the network and you've built trust with all of them and all the nodes know all the nodes either by proxy or by direct connection and new guys on the block trying to poison it or new coming into the blockchain and trying to throw nodes in poisoning data are not going to have an advantage at all. They're going to have a disadvantage because they cannot make back that time. You have two years more trust with the network than they will ever gain so even if they try to do an attack for a year and pretend to be honest and plot an attack they may poison some of the newer guys but the older guys the core ones are going to be like oh no no like you're directly disagreeing with my senior nodes that i've known for two years longer well i've only known you for a year so three years for these guys and one year for you now you're giving me bad data i'm going to trust the data of the guys that i've known longer that's kind of really how humans work in interaction and i think that's something that you know, we can model any cryptography and model into these programs is like how it's already been done, you know what I mean? Because node interactions, exchanging data and information is not much different from two people exchanging their experiences and their knowledge and knowing what knowledge is BS and what knowledge is doubt. That's all based on trust and reputation.
0: Okay. That makes sense. What about the, um, you know, the proof of work is tremendous right now with Bitcoin's hash rate. What about the, um, the encryption algorithm itself, the SHA two fifty six, is there a need to <clears throat> to upgrade that, especially in light of quantum computers that are coming?
1: Well see that's that's the caveat. That's the problem. I mean we go back full circle to the beginning of the conversation with ASIC boost. I mean, we got hundreds of millions of dollars invested in mining on that algorithm is not going to change anytime soon. The only thing that would possibly be, you know, able to be implemented is let's say, you know, another Bitcoin mining channel opens up with a different algorithm. Can slowly get a small fraction of Bitcoin to post a little difficulty or something. You're n- you're just not going to be able to eliminate that because there's too much money invested in it, and money is really what's making the shots here. It's um so yes, I believe we do need to look into that. I mean, I I've done a lot of that with you know NEXUS with you know you know the 1024 bit hashes, prime number, multiple channels, 571 bit keys, and everything like that because there's you know I mean a thousand qubits will break an xect T fifty six K one key, which is what we have right now in Bitcoin. Now, I mean, they're at three, four, five cubits now. I mean, who knows what else? But, I mean, <coughs> quantum computers are going to be more devastating than we really realize. Now, a lot of the Bitcoin developers said, hey, we'll take care of it when, when it's time. And it's like, yes, that, that is a good philosophy. I understand why fix it when it's not broken. But the other question is, well, <laughs> how big is Bitcoin going to be when that happens? And based on how hard it is for us right now to even update how easy is it going to be for us to update some of the cryptography? And another thing, too, is when Bitcoin mining hash cash proof of work, if you look at Adam Back's original paper, it talks about how it's partial collisions, basically. Now, Bitcoin is using partial collisions, but with zeros, which allows you to basically find a smaller hash. When the difficulty adjusts, it's just basically saying you have to find a smaller number, because the smallest number, one, can be a hash with all zeros and then one at the end, but that should be probably the hardest hash to try. You know what I mean? Because that's going to be the most yeah. insecure. That's going to have the highest number of partial collisions. Right now, Bitcoin is basically breaking shots, dude. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's broken it or it will break it, but it's weakening it as it's using that to strengthen Bitcoin. You know, so it's only a matter of time, really. But the question is how long and do we need to make the preparatory stages now or later? That's why I chose to just get it done at launch so we never have to worry about this in the future. Now, it can be upgraded. Let's say, you know, the private keys algorithm becomes compromised, or they find that it's going to be compromised. Say they get to 500 qubits and they're already starting to break Bitcoin keys. Oh, crap. Well, what are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to want to put them in new keys. But wait, Satoshi has, what, a million Bitcoins, right? You know, let's say he's alive or dead. We don't know. Let's say he doesn't have access to those private keys. And, okay, well, all those keys, that means that none of those funds can be moved because those keys are locked. Now, let's say they crap those keys and find the private keys. Anybody that cracks it has access to those million Bitcoins, which could be just liquidated. So if the keys, you know, the keys can be upgraded and the hashing can be upgraded, yes, but everything previous to that upgrade is rendered insecure. You know, if, let's say, they find it to be insecure. So it could cause a very, very serious cataclysm coming into the quantum computing age, which we're seeing now. Now, it's good to think forward. And I say, sooner rather than later with Bitcoin because Bitcoin's getting bigger and bigger and bigger by the day, by the year. And that just means more and more and more and more pieces with less and less and less ability for those pieces to communicate and share their opinion. So it's going to become exponentially more difficult as the days go forward to make a change like that. Now, I don't think it would be the fate of Bitcoin, you know, positive or negative, but I think it could cause a lot of problems, especially let's say the NSA takes their quantum computer. Let's say they have... 100 cubits already, and they're already trying to crack it. They crack Satoshi's keys, that's gonna be big. I mean, people are gonna be like, Satoshi's alive, or Satoshi's dead, or oh, the NSA cracked it, or whatever. You know, it's just like, there's already rumors of random keys, you know, having seed that, you know, was generated by the NSA as a backdoor. That's why in the future with us, we use 571R1, we use a random curve, which people are gonna be like, oh, yeah, the NSA can crack it, but it's like, well, when we get to the point when we're done, you know, probably on um, Quartz or Obsidian for Nexus, those are, you know, version 4.0 and 5.0 when I'm working on Tritium right now. You'll be able to basically say, all right, well, I want to choose by random seed. Now, and I'm going to seed my seed off of the blockchain, which means there can't be any NSA backdoors. And bam, we got bulletproof keys. So there's a lot of things that should be considered and looked at right now. But I think everybody, I mean, this is an assumption again. I think most people are looking at the now factor. and not as much into the future factor. You know, what are we going to do now to make this one better now? Instead of thinking, what are we going to need to do in five years? It's going to be a hell of a lot easier to do now, but it will be pricey. And that, uh, that makes sense. I guess, I guess the best answer for that question.
0: <clears throat> All right, so last, I guess, last, last question or two. I know it's anybody's guess, but knowing what you know and seeing what you see. What's your guess on what's going to happen with Bitcoin in 2017 and maybe even next year? Next year and a half, two years, what do you think are going to be the, the ups and downs?
1: Um, I guess I'll answer it a little bit out of context, but around the same context. I think we're coming to a very, very significant point in the evolution of Bitcoin where I, I guess Darwin stated that an evolution of species, right? you have to come to a precipice, which is the brink of destruction, to truly choose are we going to expend the energy to evolve or not. Because life resists change because change takes energy. Just like you burn more gasoline when you accelerate on your car versus when you're going at a static velocity. It's because changing things takes more energy to initiate that movement. But once that movement's going, it's got that momentum. So we're approaching an evolutionary leap or collapse in Bitcoin, really, where it's it's all been money and fun and games and dreams and possibilities and let's take over the world up to this point but we're really getting close to a point where we're going to start to see our precipice and that's what's rumbling right now is people are starting to see this i mean it could erupt into a civil war that destroys bitcoin and nobody, nobody does anything about it and we inevitably don't survive because just the world is changing around bitcoin needs to evolve to acclimate to the world i mean we look at things, you know, Venezuelan economies are collapsing. You know, I mean, Brazil had martial law, I mean, everything in the world is destabilized. And Bitcoin is a safe place. It's a safe. So we're gonna really come to a point as, you know, all of us Bitcoiners looking at it and saying, All right, now what can we do to keep this at? Where where can we meet in the middle? What what are we gonna do to make it evolve to the next step? Because we're approaching that precipice. I don't know if it's this year or in two years or five where we're going to have to do something like big, not just like block size of H, or not just say but the whole way everything runs. We're going to have to figure something out. Otherwise we may not survive forward or we may just reach a cap where Bitcoin really can't grow anymore until it evolves. Now that, can sustain a for a while, but eventually that kind of deteriorates it because then other people are going to put their money in other projects that can So really, the next few years are going to be very, very significant years in Bitcoin, in my opinion, where we're going to either have to come together and figure out how we're going to make it work for everybody, or we're just going to have to see it turn into another type of centralized system.
0: What do you, um, last question, what about the role of altcoins? You know, what, what role do you think Nexus will play? What about the other altcoins? Do you think that they're going to come to the fore and take over, or, or what role will they have?
1: Well, I mean, that's a very open-ended question. I mean, you have the role of Nexus, we've got a lot of different roles. Like, you know, how we're working on relationships in the aerospace industry for immutable technology and space with CubeSats, is we're making a lot of headway that way you know, other roles is just providing quantum tier technology, showing different types of proof systems, showing how they worked. you know, leveling the playing field, I mean, and just saying, hey, well, if you want to see if this works, here it is. Now, roles of other altcoins, like, this is something that was really interesting to me more recently because I never really saw the value of a clone before, ever, until I saw this happening with Bitcoin Unlimited and Segregated Witness, and like. Right? Litecoin is pretty much an absolute copy of Bitcoin. And something just clicked in my head a few weeks ago. I was like, ah, now I see a value for Litecoin. Because if Bitcoin, let's say, continues in a trend of civil war and fighting and whatever, and it it escalates, like, where else can you put your money? Well, Litecoin is the next best Bitcoin. You know, it's not the valuation of Bitcoin, but it's a safe haven. And Litecoin is going to be proving segregated witness and how it activates and how it works and saying, hey, look, now our transaction capacity is up to here. You know, now this works. So, you know, altcoins are going to be in a bunch of different ways. Right now, they're starting to be recognized for the utility and expansion kind of like Linux, you know, bred so many different variants of Linux. This is really cool with altcoins because now we're starting to see hey, you know, Bitcoin is king. Yes, but if Bitcoin doesn't stay king for their people, you know, because that's what a king should do is look after their people, then people are going to find another king. And so yep. if Litecoin adopts witness or I I mean, personally, I think it's only a matter of when. That's going to be pressure on Bitcoin. Hey, look, Litecoin's growing substantially because Bitcoin would not adopt this. Now, so if Bitcoin really wants to stay in that perspective of no alternative currencies, we don't like them. Bitcoin is going to be forced to make some moves. So, in a way, they act politically, in a way, they act as testing beds, other ways, they act as experimental places to breed new technology, and in other ways, it acts as just areas of innovation. Very interesting. All right. Well, I knew you had
0: some interesting perspectives and (laughs) a lot of knowledge. So, yeah, thanks for taking the time. You know, I really appreciate it. And uh, listeners got to listen to this interview probably several times, there's a lot
1: in there. Yeah, really good questions as well, Richard. I always enjoy our conversations. We always have a really good good energy between these. It's a nice synergy. Yeah,
0: thanks. You have been listening to Almost Here, around the corner future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review to discover more future technologies